Welcome back. Our conference concludes with a look ahead to October term 2013. The court has already put 47 cases on its docket, perhaps in part due to the justices' desire to front load oral argument and avoid the frenetic opinion writing in June. Uh, although, as Tom Goldstein and I were discussing uh, just now, uh, there are only, I think, three afternoon sittings, uh, which is the process the court generally uses to have oral argument uh, uh, earlier than otherwise. So we'll see what uh, what happens. Some highlights are NLRB versus Noel Canning, testing the validity of President Obama's recess appointments. Schuette versus Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action regarding a state constitutional ban on racial preferences. Uh, McCutcheon versus FEC, challenging the aggregate contribution limits in campaign finance law. Cayley versus United States on the right of, to counsel of choice in the context of criminal forfeiture, and Bond versus United States, a case on the scope of the treaty power that's making a rare return trip to the high court. Cato has filed briefs in all of these cases, as well as in several other petitions that, if granted, would become high-profile additions. In other words, even if the new term doesn't yet have the blockbusters that the last two did, it feels a bit like an off-year given the absence of Obamacare, gay marriage, and so forth, there's still plenty for court watchers to watch. To discuss the term, we have Howard Bashman, Tom Goldstein, and Marsha Coyle. I'll introduce them briefly, but I'll mention uh, for those of you who want to uh, live tweet or otherwise cover this session that weren't here earlier, the hashtag is hashtag CatoCD13. Uh, don't have it be CatoCD because that is going to be about pictures of cats with OCD, apparently. Um, my Twitter handle is at iShapiro. You're welcome to throw me uh, questions as uh, the panel goes on, or jokes, uh, or other things. I'll try to work them in. Uh, all right. Howard Bashman uh, has his own appellate boutique in suburban Philadelphia. He appears regularly before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, uh, one of the handful of uh, federal appellate courts I'm not admitted to yet, and Pennsylvania's state appellate court. Howard graduated from Columbia College, where he won the George William Curtis Prize in Oratory. Ah, so the pressure's on to dazzle the crowd. Uh, <laughs> he received his JD with distinction from Emory University after law school, clerked for Third Circuit Judge William Hutchinson. Since 2000, he's written a monthly column on appellate developments for the Legal Intelligencer, uh, Philly's daily newspaper for lawyers. Howard's been profiled by the AP, the ABA Journal, Legal Times, and Pennsylvania Super Lawyers Magazine. Does that come with a cape? <laughs> most importantly, he authors one of the oldest and most popular law blogs, or blogs, B-L-A-W-G, um, How Appealing, which I've been reading since I was in law school. Tom Goldstein is a partner at Goldstein and Russell. He's argued 28 cases before the Supreme Court, including one of the three and only three that Cato lost last year. So I'm not really sure why we asked him back. <laughs> Besides practicing law, Tom teaches Supreme Court litigation at Harvard Law School. He used to do that at Stanford as well, but I think he was fired from that recently, either that or he had to stop before his carbon footprint violated Obamacare. Uh, in 2003, Tom founded SCOTUS Blog, which makes my job so much easier and which is the only blog ever to receive the ABA's Silver Gavel Award. Howard, are you jealous? Well, you will be, because among his accolades, Tom uh, uh, was also named by the National Law Journal one of the 40 most influential lawyers of the decade and 100 most influential in America. 
the Legal Times named him one of the 90 greatest Washington lawyers of the last 30 years, and GQ did them all better by naming him one of the 50 most influential people in Washington. Not just lawyers, but it's DC, so they're all lawyers anyway. <laughs> he also used to win all of those age category prizes, you know, 40 under 40 and, and, and all that. But those have been removed from his official bio because it turns out that he's been taking human growth hormone all this time and was actually born during the Chester Allen Arthur administration. <laughs> and finally, Marsha Coyle, who's the chief Washington correspondent at the National Law Journal, and so apparently is responsible for identifying all those instances of Tom's <laughs> tremendous influence. Marsha is a lawyer as well as a journalist, uh, breaking our string of non-JDs in that slot, and has covered the Supreme Court for 25 years. She's also a regular contributor to PBS's NewsHour. I listen to the blog while I'm, while I'm working out. Uh, and before joining the NLJ, she covered state and national politics for a Pennsylvania Times-Mirror daily newspaper, and has also written about legal issues for such publications as Vogue and Ms. Magazine. So she's right at home with Mr. GQ here. <laughs> Marsha is the author most recently of the best-selling book, The Roberts Court, The Struggle for the Constitution. She earned her BA from Hood College, her MS in Journalism from Northwestern, and her JD from the University of Baltimore. Her reporting has garnered numerous national journalism awards, including the George Polk Award for Legal Reporting. So we'll start off this lively panel with Howard Bashman, who authored the Looking Ahead essay in this year's Supreme Court Review. Thank you, Ilya, for that kind introduction. It is truly an honor for me to be here today. After year after year after year, where Cato has selected an author from within the Beltway to write the Looking Ahead essay, this year it decided to reach out into the heartland of America, all the way up to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, <laughs> to find me. We're here today to try to predict what cases will have us riveted to SCOTUS blog at the end of June 2014. Sorry to say, Tom, as of today, I'm not sure there are any. But of course, that is still subject to change. The way that we've broken up the cases among the three of us is that we're each going to speak primarily to three of the most important cases or the most interesting cases the court has granted review in already. And then a little bit later, perhaps we'll talk about some of the other cases and maybe even look ahead into uh, cases that could be granted in the future. The first case that I'll be covering is the Schutte versus Coalition to defend affirmative action case, which arises out of the state of Michigan. In the aftermath of the Grutter and Gretz versus Bollinger cases, Michigan, the voters of Michigan passed what is known as the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative which, among other things, made it impermissible for things such as race, ethnicity, uh, country of origin to be taken into consideration in university admissions in the public university system of Michigan. The state of California, had, the citizens of California also passed a similar law enacted into the Constitution in California. And when the California law came up, as being challenged on his constitutionality, both the Supreme Court of California and what for the Ninth Circuit was a relatively conservative Ninth Circuit panel rejected those constitutional challenges. 
So a similar challenge was then brought against this Michigan constitutional change in front of the Sixth Circuit. And that case ended up going in bank, meaning that the full Sixth Circuit heard the case. Ultimately, by a vote of eight to seven, the majority on the Sixth Circuit struck down that aspect of the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative as unconstitutional, holding that prohibiting a university from taking race into account in admissions violates equal protection, which many people uh, perhaps found to be a surprising holding. But the basis for the holding was something known as the political process doctrine. And the majority reasoned as followed. If an athlete or a child of a graduate of a university wants the admissions board to take athletics or the fact that someone's a legacy into consideration in admissions, that person could go to the admissions board and say, you should take these things into consideration. And if the admissions board thought that there was merit in doing so, the admissions board could just do so. But if somebody wanted to take to the admissions board the fact that issues of racial origin or national origin or ethnicity should be taken into consideration as a result of this constitutional amendment, that person could not convince the board to change the approach, but rather had to go pass an entirely different constitutional amendment as a matter of Michigan law. And so the lack of access to the political process for people who were disadvantaged by the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative is why a majority of the Sixth Circuit struck it down as unconstitutional. Now, SCOTUS blog has been running a symposium on the case that has had many very interesting entries in it. Uh, I think that uh, people are anticipating a year after the court did not decide in Fisher versus University of Texas uh, that taking race into consideration in university admissions by state universities is unconstitutional, that in this case, it's probably most likely by a very close vote that the more conservative justices will overturn the Sixth Circuit and will find that a state can pass such a constitutional amendment that prohibits race from being taken into account without violating equal, equal protection. At least that's my best guess on how that's going to come out. The next case that I'm going to speak to arises from my home circuit, the Third Circuit, and that is the Bond versus United States case, which is now before the U.S. Supreme Court a second time. Uh, Paul Clement has a, uh, ordinarily a fine track record of victories at the U.S. Supreme Court. His track record in front of the Third Circuit is, is not as good, which is why this case has come to the Supreme Court twice. The, uh, this case has a little bit of everything, as we were discussing in our uh, pre-session pre meeting. It has adultery, federalism, and chemical weapons. Not, not involving Paul. <laughs> Let's just be clear. And, and so, it's just like an ERISA case. <laughs> <laughs> so as the case arises, federal prosecutors brought federal criminal charges against a woman from Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which is just down the road from where I live, who decided that she should use her, her knowledge of uh, toxic substances to try to exact revenge on her husband's paramour by putting some chemicals on the mailbox and things like that. And, and the paramour at some points ended up getting skin burns. And, and so it became a federal case. And, uh, and as part of a, uh, a treaty uh, involving chemical weapons, the, the Congress 
passed laws that that's, uh, somehow made criminal what would otherwise be this local crime. And, and so this case has these federalism overlays concerning the treaty power of the United States, namely whether in order to implement a treaty that is not self-implementing, Congress has the power to pass laws that otherwise would be impermissible as invading the uh, domain of state legislatures. And there is a, uh, an interesting thought experiment that one could engage in. Uh, if, if the federal Congress were somewhat more liberal, and, and if there were uh, many other countries out there that were interested in abolishing the death penalty, let's say, uh, it would be possible for the United States to enter into a treaty with another country that said, we'll abolish the United States' death penalty throughout the United States if, if your country will do the same. And, and then if Congress would pass that law that said, we're abolishing the death penalty in every single state in the United States, uh, the, the question would be, you know, would that be a proper exercise of, of the treaty power uh, to, for example, say to Texas, you know, Texas, you might like the death penalty, but you can't have it anymore because we passed this treaty. And, and so in essence, that's one of the issues that, that this case uh, raises. On, on the other side, of course, individual states do not have the power even as a collective, to get together and enter into treaties on behalf of the United States with other countries. And so there are times where it's necessary for the United States in support of certainly perfectly valid treaty goals to agree to do things that maybe Congress otherwise can't do. And, and one could say that the states as deciding to join the federal government may have ceded that power to Congress where a treaty is involved to enact laws that go beyond Congress's ordinary federalism power. That, that is the question that that case now raises. And, uh, and I anticipate that that's going to be a very close call for the justices. Paul Clement will be arguing that case on behalf of Mrs. Bond. On, on the last time it was up there, the question was whether an individual could enforce Tenth Amendment rights. And, uh, and the Third Circuit had said no, the Tenth Amendment does not give individuals rights and the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. Uh, that, then when the case was remanded, unfortunately due to dicta from an earlier U.S. Supreme Court decision known as Missouri versus Holland, where the court dismissed federalism concerns when Congress was implementing a treaty, uh, Paul lost again in front of the Third Circuit. And, and now the court's going to perhaps directly confront whether Missouri versus Holland should be overruled. The last case that I'm going to speak about today involves federal criminal restitution and child pornography. Professor Paul Cassell, who is himself a blogger at the Volokh Conspiracy, after leaving the federal district bench, went, went back to become a law professor and uh, as, uh, as an additional pursuit has begun to seek the enforcement of federal restitution laws in, in various cases under mandamus provisions and the like. And, and when these cases come up in the federal courts of appeals, they have very short time frames for decision, which uh, tend to make them horribly inconvenient for, for the judges who have to decide those cases. But one, one main area in which Professor Cassell has been pursuing restitution claims arises out of the very sad circumstances of child pornography. And in particular, there are two victims of child pornography 
whose images have been passed around, it seems like, uh, to, to many, many people who've been found with them on their computers. And, uh, and these children were the subject of a cover story that, was, that ran in the New York Times Sunday Magazine that Emily Bazelon wrote. And these, these two girls have sustained over, you know, each have sustained millions of dollars worth of injury as a result of having been the victims of child pornography and having their images be passed around in this way. Now, under the Federal Mandatory Restitution Act for criminal defendants, someone who is convicted of a crime has the obligation to make restitution to the victim. And the question that this case presents is whether someone should be liable based on their ability to pay up to the full amount of the victim's losses, or whether each person should only be responsible for his share of the victim's losses. Now, as you might imagine, federal courts and federal appellate courts are ordinarily uh, not very amenable to arguments that the rights of people convicted of possessing child pornography have been violated. However, in these cases, the federal appellate courts, with one exception, have ruled that the maximum of restitution that can be imposed is only that share of the victim's injuries that the individual violator is responsible for, as opposed to being liable for the, potentially the full share, so that if someone has, is a billionaire, he would have to pay the full amount of, of losses himself. The Fifth Circuit, however, is that one outlier, and it's the case from the Fifth Circuit that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided to review. And I think that Professor Cassell is expected to be arguing that case at the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what position the federal government takes in that case. And, uh, and I think that that's one that's going to be really too close to call, uh, even though the, uh, the vast weight of federal appellate authority is now on the side of the criminal defendants in these cases. So with that, I will turn it over to Tom Goldstein. Thank you. Prepare to be influenced. Thanks so much. Uh, like all the panelists, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you at Cato, in my mind, uh, for an institution that is devoted to developing thought, uh, the most important things you can have are three. The first is you have to have a set of principles. The second is you have to be able to and willing to take those principles to whatever result they produce. And the third is you have to be willing to debate your opponents and provide a forum for that. And when it comes particularly to libertarian thought, but an array of policy issues, in Washington, there is nobody that embodies those three values uh, better than Cato, in my opinion. Um, I get to talk about three really interesting constitutional cases. I think one framework for a couple of the cases that Howard talked about, and all three of the ones that I'm going to talk about, is to think about the movement of the Supreme Court across short periods of time and long periods of time. And more than most uh, terms, this one is already shaping up in, as one in which a majority of the Supreme Court seems willing to revisit constitutional law precedents. 
that many had thought were very well settled and to step into legal issues despite the existence of at least substantial circuit conflicts. Uh, you can see that, for example, with the Schutte case that Howard mentioned, there were a couple of previous Warren Court era-ish cases in which the Supreme Court had said that, for example, you couldn't adopt a local ordinance banning busing because that prohibited minorities from being able to approach, you know, enter into the political process and achieve that result. Uh, you can see it in you know, an array of different kinds of cases. Um, with respect to you know, affirmative action last term and two or three of the three cases that I'm going to talk about for this term. So the first one that I'll talk about is another race case, like the Schutte case, like the Fisher case before it. It's called Mount Holly. It arises under the Federal Fair Housing Act. And the question in the Mount Holly case involves disparate impact discrimination. So we have to do a little bit of lawyer's terminology, the difference between disparate impact and disparate treatment. Disparate treatment is classical discrimination, and that is you do something mean to somebody else because of some characteristic of them that you disagree with. And so, you know, in Title VII, you may have discrimination on the basis of race or discrimination on the basis of gender. Disparate treatment is discrimination in effect, even if not in intent, a disparate impact. Uh, and the reason we have that principle of disparate impact is in large part because, you know, as wh while many decades ago, or even not that many decades ago, you could have policymakers saying, I don't want any women in this job, or I don't want any blacks in this job, that those forms of overt discrimination are much more rare. And so the courts first, and the Supreme Court in a series of cases, when it comes to the major civil rights legislation in the United States, particularly Title VII, has recognized the notion that the statutes, when they say you may not discriminate against someone because of race, are not limited to cases where you were intentionally calling out their race as the basis for the decision, but rather, even if you adopt a neutral policy that has disparate effects on the basis of race, uh, that policy will be illegal. You can also see in the gender area where it's perhaps easiest to capture. For example, if you have an unnecessary policy that requires that people, that the employees be able to carry a certain amount of weight that doesn't have a bona fide reason in the job qualification, well, that'll produce more male employees than female employees, and that's disparate impact discrimination. So back to the Federal Fair Housing Act. This is a statute that prohibits discrimination in housing, in housing availability, and collateral things like issuing loans for housing. And this statute has the same language almost as Title VII. But, and as I mentioned, the Supreme Court many years ago did recognize disparate impact claims under Title VII, but that was a different Supreme Court. And the conservative members of this Supreme Court have been pretty overtly concerned and hostile to disparate impact claims. Their view is that if a statute says you shall not discriminate because of a characteristic, it's talking about purposeful discrimination, not incidental or accidental discrimination. And so the Supreme Court has abided by their predecessors' decisions in the Title VII area. I had a case involving the ADEA, the AGE Act, where they recognized disparate impact limit, uh, uh, claims. But the rubber seems to have hit the road, and the Supreme Court has stepped into the question when it comes to the Federal Fair Housing Act, whether you can have a disparate impact claim despite the absence of any circuit conflict, which is the usual trigger for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in, and despite the fact that the federal government just issued a set of regulations recognizing the claims and setting their terms. And so the very fact that the court has aggressively taken this case suggests that the plaintiffs who want to bring these claims have a difficult time. 
This would have a significant consequence for an array of cases brought against municipalities by the federal government and by civil rights organizations against particularly the banking industry when it comes to claims involving the redlining of loans so that particular areas you're more willing to give loans to purchase houses but not in others. And that has given rise to a variety of disparate impact litigation. One other little insight into Supreme Court practice that the case provides is that I had a case representing the plaintiffs involving disparate impact litigation under the FHA a couple of terms ago, and at, including at the urging of not just civil rights groups, but the Obama administration, right before the case was going to go and be argued, the case settled and went away. And there have been reports that there's enormous pressure for this case to settle as well, because civil rights organizations in this area and a lot of other areas are scared to death of letting these questions come before this Supreme Court. And the justices are confined by Article Three of the Constitution. You can only decide something if there's a case or controversy. And even if they grant a case, it can be settled and taken away from them. So it will be interesting if they do get to decide the issue, and if they do, what limits they place on uh, federal fair housing disparate impact uh, claims. But the vulnerability, the change in the precedent is the fact that the court, I think, is going to give very little respect to that prior Title VII precedent, which is under statutes that involve, were enacted almost the same time with almost the same language. But the conservative members of the uh, court just have a different view about those claims now. Uh, the second case that I'll talk about is an abortion case. It's called Klein. It's a case that's like Schrodinger's cat. It's on the docket, but not on the docket at the same time. The justices granted certiorari and kicked it off to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Here's what's involved and why they've done that. Oklahoma has a statute that prohibits some number of medical abortions, i.e. non-surgical abortions done by drugs. And they have imposed some restrictions on the use of drugs that uh, are abortifacients. And uh, in particular, they have required that drugs be used only in compliance with the FDA label. And there is not a combination of drugs that you can actually endorse an abortion if you strictly just follow the FDA label because you need multiple drugs and one of the drugs isn't even labeled by the FDA for that purpose, although it's widely used off-label for that purpose. Now, the question is that the plaintiffs uh, or that the, the, the state wants to present to the Supreme Court is, can a state restrict the use of medications that would be used for abortion to the FDA label, or does that violate the constitutional rights associated with abortion and the Roe right? But because it was unclear exactly what the Oklahoma statute did, despite the fact that it had been invalidated, the U.S. Supreme Court took it and asked the Oklahoma Supreme Court to explain the statute, which is a perfectly sensible thing to do. Now, depending on what the Oklahoma Supreme Court does, this could have very significant consequences for the abortion right. Uh, this is another, in a sense, what Irv Bornstein has called among the vulnerable precedents that he's a professor at Georgetown, uh, who that the conservative members of the court are stepping away from, including Justice Kennedy, who at one time in the famous Casey case did provide a vote to save the core row right, but seems to have stepped back from it to some extent. So if the Oklahoma Supreme Court comes back to the U.S. Supreme Court and says, yes, you are not going to be able to have a medically induced abortion in the state of Oklahoma because no, there aren't enough drugs that would comply with the FDA label, that would set up a major test of the scope of the right to an abortion. Uh, when the Oklahoma Supreme Court will get back to the U.S. Supreme Court, we don't know. There's no timeline. But that case will be decided either this term or next term, and it could be a big deal or it could be a dud. Um, the third case that I'm going to talk about involves the recess appointments clause. And so we can all pull out our handy Cato 
constitutions. <laughs> it, they don't have their own constitution. We, we, provide, we provide one for each speaker on the lectern when Excellent. they need to refer to it. So if, if you happen to have a copy of the Constitution, and Article 2 in Section 2 says the following. The president shall have the power. And that's always good if you're the president. You're going to have a power. This power is to fill up all vacancies. Okay, all of them. That's pretty good, too. That may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. And the, the action words in this clause for present purposes are the vacancies have to happen during the recess of the Senate. And the question here is, when do vacancies happen for purposes of Article 2? And um, uh, what is the recess of the Senate? So here's the context. As we know, our political system is functioning great. Uh, <laughs> the, um, it, there have been some problems. The Senate has been a little bit busy. Democrats weren't quite able to get to President Bush's nominees. And uh, Senate Republicans have been a little bit slow at getting to President Obama's. That is to say, nobody can get confirmed for anything, basically. Uh, and it's a tit-for-tat thing, and it is a real problem for the functioning of our government. Now, the one of the ways the president can get around, perhaps, the Senate's refusal to confirm various nominees is to recess appoint them. This has happened with judges, justices of the Supreme Court, lots and lots, General MacArthur, I think, lots and lots of recess appointments have happened. Now, uh, it really came to a head with a series of recess appointments to the NLRB. What happened was the Supreme Court has said that the NLRB has to have three members to have a quorum. No quorum, no NLRB. So they were about to get to the point where they had only two members, and the president had, did not have confirmed nominees to the NLRB. Uh, and so he uh, was going to recess appointment or recess appoint them. As the presidents have expanded their use of the recess appointments, the uh, Congress has made one other maneuver that's relevant to this case, and that is the rule used to be that there had to be that was recognized by the executive branch and the Office of Legal Counsel in particular was that there had to be recesses of a certain period of time, more than three days. So what uh, House Republicans made the Senate do in setting scheduling orders and Senate Democrats had previously done is they decided to have what are so-called pro forma sessions. So if you were going to have a recess for six days, for example, well, ordinarily, that would historically be sufficient to have a recess appointment by the president. So what would happen is that someone would come in to the Senate and say, the Senate shall be now in order. Then they would say, thanks for coming. And that would be the end. That would be the, the session of the Senate. So President Obama said, oh, come on which is another part of the Constitution, and uh, <laughs> said, I'm going to recess appoint my members of the NLRB, which raised three questions uh, in a case that eventually went to the DC Circuit. And they are, look, the NLRB's member, those vacancies did not happen happen during the vacant, or, or did they happen during the recess of the Senate? They were pre-existing. What is, when the Constitution says the recess, does that mean that there's one? It doesn't say a recess, it says that the recess. And if there's only one, it's probably the intercession recess between sessions of Congress rather than various intra-session recesses. And what's, assuming that the administration were to win those two things, what uh, is a minimum length of a recess to trigger the recess appointments clause? And can the Senate essentially undo the power by having these pro forma sessions? In an opinion by an exceptionally wise and present judge of the D.C. Circuit, um, the uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit said that the administration had violated the recess appointments clause in two different ways. 
that the we look at the Constitution, it says vacancies that happen during the recess. And these vacancies did not happen during the recess. And when it says the recess, it's talking about the recess. It is not talking about a recess. And therefore, it applies only to uh, intercession, not intracession recesses. And it did, the court found it unnecessary to reach the question of these pro forma uh, sessions and what it is that they mean. Now, this was a development in the law. Uh, it was not an entirely novel development in the law, and it is not a Republican development in the law. I had made these arguments on behalf of Senator Kennedy uh, in, during the Bush administration, trying to block Bush administration recess appointments. So it's not an ideological question. But the president had been given relatively free hand before in making these appointments. And the Supreme Court quite sensibly has decided to step into the breach. The administration has been generally losing these cases as courts have, for the first time, taken a very serious look at what the recess appointments clause means. I think that because the opponents of the appointments have so many arguments, it will be hard for the administration to pull together five votes. But they have just filed a brief, and to give it its due, it does cite something like 62 billion recess appointments uh, that conform to various parts of its argument over the past few, a couple, a few hundred years. And the Supreme Court may well be faced with the ultimate constitutional question, what do we do with the Constitution if for a long time we've been ignoring the Constitution. Uh, they were not that deterred when, you know, people used to think the Second Amendment was- Cato a has some answers about that. Um, you know, the Second Amendment kind of got recognized for the first time in a long time, and that may provide, that may present no obstacle whatsoever. But it does present one of these fantastic things. We've had this Constitution thing for a long time, and you would imagine, particularly because recess appointments come up a lot, that we would have thought about and resolved what this means. But the Supreme Court has never done that. So it presents a fantastic question. The consequences could be substantial, both for the political process and the power of the Senate, and also for many hundreds of NLRB adjudications that could be invalidated by the Supreme Court's ruling, which the NLRB can't just rubber stamp now that it has confirmed members, because those were actual proceedings, and the proceedings are over. So it's a very interesting question, uh, and uh, we look forward to the Supreme Court's decision. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with all of you today, and I'd also like to thank Cato uh, for inviting me, and in particular, Ilya, who, uh, in his trademark, soft-spoken, persuasive way, <laughs> simply said to me, it's your turn. <laughs> and I quickly re replied, oh, yes, uh, oh, powerful and wise Oz. And so here I am. Um, my three cases have to do with sex, money, and religion. And I'm going to start with sex, but... Please don't get too excited. I use that term rather loosely. I have probably the less sexier of the two abortion cases on the Supreme Court stock at this term. Uh, one of my more distinct memories of Justice Scalia, as I've covered the court over the years, was actually back in the year 2000 when he read uh, an angry and anguished dissent from the bench in an abortion clinic protest case. Uh, now, I know his dissents from the bench are always angry and anguished, but uh, this one stuck with me for some reason. Uh, that case was Hill versus, Colo uh, Hill versus Colorado, and uh, it involved a 100-foot uh, floating buffer zone around an abortion clinic. The Supreme Court uh, upheld that 
uh, against a uh, First Amendment challenge. It found that this was a content neutral uh, regulation and that it balanced uh, the need to protect the privacy of those going into the clinic, as well as keeping open lines of communication uh, among those who wanted to protest or encourage those going into the clinic. Justice Scalia is going to get another opportunity to take a look at this uh, this coming term in a case out of Massachusetts. Massachusetts uh, has a law that makes it a crime to enter or remain on a public way or sidewalk within 35 feet of the entrance, exit, or driveway of any reproductive health facility. Now, the law does have an exemption. It exempts uh, employees or agents of the clinic as long as they're acting within the scope of their employment. Well, this law was challenged by some uh, anti-abortion protesters, again, under the First and the 14th Amendments. And they said this was a viewpoint-based restriction that actually excluded all disfavored speakers from a public place. And they say that is really what distinguishes it from the Colorado case. But if the court can't distinguish the Colorado case, then they urge the court to overrule Hill versus Colorado. Now, uh, intrepid reporter that I am, I did some empirical research last night on my way to catch my bus. Uh, 35 feet is about the distance between 13th and 14th Streets Northwest at G Street. So from the corner of 13th Street, I could read across on the corner of 14th Street the no left turn sign which some drivers were, as usual, ignoring. But I don't think the pedestrians on the corner of 14th Street could hear me questioning those drivers' reading ability, moral fiber, and other, other comments I was making. Uh, nevertheless, uh, that 35 feet it is a substantial amount of, of, of distance. Massachusetts has countered that the law is content neutral. Uh, it points again to ex exception and says that ultimately both pro and anti-abortion protesters have to abide by the buffer zone. Uh, it also says that Hill obviously upheld the 100-foot floating buffer zone. This is a fixed buffer zone. Uh, so the two cases are distinguishable. Uh, the court actually declined to review this case back in 2010 after the Court of Appeals upheld the Massachusetts law on its face, but it, it came back and took it for this term. Uh, Hill was decided in 2000 when Justice Stevens wrote the majority opinion, and that majority included Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justices O'Connor, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer. Uh, Rehnquist, O'Connor, and Souter obviously are no longer on the court. Justices Kennedy and Scalia wrote dissenting opinions in Hill. Uh, and uh, I think probably Kennedy, Scalia, and Thomas uh, have not changed their views very much on the First Amendment and how it applies to these buffer zones. So it, it will be interesting to see uh, what the outcome is. Uh, but this is a very strong First Amendment court, and I think uh, Massachusetts is going to have something of an uphill battle. battle. Uh, my second case, uh, fortunately for all of you, I can't offer any empirical research on campaign finance. This case concerns federal limits on contributions to candidates, PACs, and political party committees during a two-year election cycle, what are known as 
aggregate con contribution limits. Uh, since uh, I am paying off one child's college loan and have signed away my hopes for retirement on my second child's loan, there's no way I would contribute $48,600 to all federal candidates combined and a total of $76,400 to non-candidate political committees during a two-year election cycle. But Sean McCutcheon, bless his patriotic patriotic bank account, not only wants to make these contributions, he wants to contribute even more. So he and the Republican National Committee have challenged those aggregate limits as violating their First Amendment speech rights. Uh, Congress enacted those limits in addition to what are known as base limits on contributions back in the 1970s. And they said those that aggregate limit, the ceiling, was necessary to prevent contributors from circumventing the base limits. And those uh, ceilings were upheld in uh, the ruling so many love to hate, Buckley versus Vallejo. The court there agreed with the argument that it was necessary to have the ceiling in order to uh, prevent circumvention of the uh, base limits. Uh, McCutcheon, the RNC, and their supporters claim that the regulatory scheme for campaign finance uh, has changed dramatically since the 1970s, and you really don't need the aggregate limits anymore. Uh, McCain-Feingold and other reforms have uh, closed the door on circumvention of the contribution limits. Uh, the Buckley Court uh, Initially, uh, it well, it originally refused to apply strict scrutiny to those contribution limits. Uh, the uh, challengers here are asking the court to apply strict scrutiny. Uh, the court has always viewed contributions as being a, a lesser burden on speech, which is why it does not apply strict scrutiny. The government, in response to the challengers, is saying, yes, uh, you uh, should follow Buckley. You don't have to apply strict scrutiny here. Uh, the rationale from the 1970s remains true today. And there still is this potential for an end run around the base contribution limits. Cato has filed an amicus brief in this case, and it has argued that Buckley's distinction between contributions and expenditures, which do get strict scrutiny, limits on expenditures do get strict scrutiny, that that distinction is unworkable and destabilizes the campaign finance system. There's really no question that the Roberts court has been on a deregulatory path in the area of campaign finance. And Citizens United is its most important ruling thus far. But whether the court is ready to take the next step in deregulation by striking down what have been thus far fairly sacred limits uh, on contributions, even the aggregate limits here, is hard to say. Uh, as for reconsidering Buckley, there are at least, I would think, three justices ready to reconsider it, Kennedy, Scalia, and Thomas. Uh, Justice Alito, in a 2006 case involving Vermont's contribution limits, wrote separately in that case, basically saying the time may come when Buckley should be revisited, but this was not the time, this was not the case. So I think the Chief Justice may, as he did in Citizens United, uh, hold the key to the outcome here if the court is closely divided. And my final case is Town of Greece, New York versus Galloway. Uh, 
buffer zones, campaign finance. They're like old home week at the Supreme Court. And the town of Greece versus Galloway sort of completes that reunion scene. Uh, we've come back to the question of the constitutionality of prayer at uh, government meetings, public meetings. Uh, the town of Greece wants to reverse a Second Circuit ruling that found that its practice of opening town board meetings with prayers by local clergy violated the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. That practice began in 1999, and the lower court found that at least two-thirds of the prayers that were being offered uh, contained Christian references, such as to Jesus Christ. Uh, clergy uh, would ask those at the meetings to join in the prayers. Board members would usually stand with heads bowed. Uh, some would say amen or make the sign of the cross. Uh, two residents of the town of Greece uh, Grecians contend that many in the audience attending the meetings are required to be there. And sometimes school children are required to be there to fulfill civics class assignments. The Second Circuit applied what we call, generally call the endorsement test. That's a test that uh, Justice O'Connor crafted for Establishment Clause violations. Uh, the Second Circuit said a legislative prayer practice that, however well-intentioned, conveys to a reasonable objective observer under the totality of the circumstances an official affiliation with a particular religion violates the clear command of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Uh, the town's lawyer in the high court is the very able Thomas Hunger of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutchen, Crutcher, and he opens his brief on the merits with a simple statement. This case begins and ends with Marsh v. Chambers. Now, that was a 1983 decision uh, in which Chief Justice Berger led the court in upholding clergy-led prayers at the opening of the Nebraska legislature sessions. And the court there ignored what was then the prevailing Establishment Clause test, the infamous three-prong Lemon versus Kurtzman test, and instead rested the ruling on the nation's long history of legislative prayers. Uh, the town of Greece urges the court to reject the endorsement test and the Lemon test. But the two challengers claim their case is not Marsh versus Chambers, and their focus is on the coercive effect of the prayers at board meetings. Uh, I want to mention, uh, oh, first, first of all, the court has generally been receptive to arguments that there should be greater government accommodation of religion in the public space. Uh, they could use this case to bring greater clarity to their Establishment Clause doctrine, which many consider quite a mess, or they could focus very narrowly on the facts here and simply say Marsh governs. Uh, two other religion clause issues that may be coming quickly. Uh, Obamacare has uh, triggered one, whether for-profit companies uh, that have religious owners uh, can, uh, they are cha actually challenging and have challenged uh, the requirement that they provide contraceptive or abortion-related uh, services under their health care plans. They claim that violates their religious beliefs. There is a circuit split, and I'm, I think I'm almost certain before the end of the year, we're going to see one or more of those petitions get to the court. And the next gay rights case may be religion-based as well. Uh, there's a photography studio in New Mexico that refused to take <clears throat> photos of a lesbian couple's 
commitment uh, ceremony, and were found to have violated the state's anti-discrimination law. The studio's owners claim that uh, doing this would violate their religious beliefs. So it may be a fascinating term for the religion clause as well. Thank you. Before turning to your questions, just I have a few uh, notes about several of the cases that were mentioned. Um, Howard mentioned the Bond case, that treaty power, federalism, chemical weapons case. Uh, Cato actually has a motion to, um, now pending before the court, to get uh, a few minutes of argument because the whole case is based on uh, a Law Review article published by our senior fellow and professor at Georgetown, Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz, and who has also been the author of our uh, various briefs that we filed uh, in the case. Paul Clement, who is petitioner's counsel, uh, has agreed uh, to this motion, consents to it, so we'll see whether the court allows us to take uh, 10 minutes. So Nick Rosencrantz would be uh, arguing for us if, if that were to happen, so that's uh, exciting. We're keeping our fingers crossed. Uh, Marsha mentioned the McCutcheon case uh, and uh, was gracious enough to mention my brief in, in that case, the campaign finance case. Uh, I, I was thinking as she was describing, you know, the, the sums involved and the issues. Now, even though we filed a brief supporting the challenge to the uh, aggregate limits, perhaps if uh, Sean McCutcheon, uh, who has visited us a couple of times to talk about these issues, uh, is uh, his bank account is so patriotic and he loses this case, maybe that'll free up more money to give to Cato. So perhaps we should be hoping for uh, the court ultimately to decide it on the other side. Uh, on the other case, or one of the other cases that Marsha mentioned, uh, McCullen, um, the, the abortion protest uh, uh, clinic uh, zone of exclusion, Cato actually yesterday filed uh, a very interesting brief. My name's on it because we employ all these people who aren't actually members of a bar and, you know, they're all philosophers and so forth. So I get to take credit for it. It's actually the work of my younger colleagues, Trevor Burris and, and Gabe Latner. Fantastic analysis about the right to public presence. Uh, that is, uh, we have private property. We at Cato obviously believes quite strongly in protections for property rights, but what about the public space? And we begin our brief uh, with a poem by Walt Whitman uh, about the majesty and equality, the egalitarian nature of public spaces. So we'll see what the court uh, does with that and anything. And finally, uh, Tom, while, uh, the, while your presentation was going on, I got a question, our first question on Twitter, uh, and that is whether, uh, I think this person picked up on your, your, your GQ uh, award, whether it is now the fashion for Supreme <coughs> Court litigators' jackets not to have breast pockets. I don't know if you want to elaborate <laughs> on that. Anyhow, any comments by the other panelists? <laughs> Uh, sartorial or uh, jurisprudential? Maybe I'll, I'll mention, a, uh, Marsha very helpfully mentioned other cases that might come in front of the court. And so I'll, I agree with her, the, those that she mentioned, and I'll mention two others. One is going to be about cell phones and cell phone privacy and whether it is when the government uh, pulls you over, and they certainly wouldn't pull you over, but pulls somebody over uh, and looks at your cell phone, whether they need a warrant to actually search the cell phone and whether it depends on the kind of phone. And that's a question, like many others, that the justices have struggled with technology and what it means and different forms of information systems and the like under the Fourth Amendment. The second is the possibility of not just the uh, religion gay rights case that uh, Marsha mentioned, which is an extremely important case, but in the wake of the court's Windsor uh, and Perry decisions, the LGBT community 
really took away from the Supreme Court the sense that the court was their friend. And then in the wake of those decisions, a huge number of challenges along the line of the very broad Perry case, arguing that there's a federal constitutional right to same-sex marriage, have been brought in a whole bunch of states and are making their way to the Supreme Court like a rocket ship or a series of rocket ships. And so within a year, I think we should expect the justices to be confronted and they may try and duck, but there are, I think, inevitably going to be disagreements in the courts of appeals and they may just think it's so important that they have to take it confronted with that very basic question. And the only thing I'll say about that is that I think this is a tremendous miscalculation by the people who have brought those cases and that the takeaway message from the Windsor and Perry cases was actually go slow let this play its way out in the state legislatures. Do not make a federal case about this uh, for you know five years or so and give us some time to catch our breath and get used to this notion. Uh, and so we, while the kind of moral message or the felt sense that has come out from the Supreme Court from recently on gay rights has been very favorably inclined, I think there's the real potential for <clears throat> a reversal as, as there's an overreaching by that community. And if I can add just... Uh one point, which is the way that I close my looking ahead essay. Uh, we, we've seen this summer, Justice Ginsburg has been on a preemptive media blitz to tell people that she'll retire when she's ready to retire. But, but, I, but I anticipate that, that the pressure on her to step down during an Obama presidency will continue to mount during this term, and uh, especially leading up to the end of this term when uh, congressional elections are right there on the horizon. All of which will make her less likely to retire. <laughs> Questions? Right there. Wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and actually ask a question without making a speech. My name is Stephen Shore. On the uh, clinic boundary issues, there is also a federal legislation called HIPAA about preserving patients' privacy rights. And has anyone argued or is likely to argue that a collapsing the boundary zone would violate the privacy rights of patients, just as let's say you had a dialysis clinic and anyone entering the dialysis clinic would presumably be there as a patient for dialysis. And to let people who felt that on religious grounds or whatever, that dialysis was morally wrong would expose dialysis patients to these protesters. Well, I haven't seen HIPAA specifically being argued, but the the question of the privacy rights of patients, I think, always underlies these cases and will be argued as part of it. Uh, but right now, the focus is obviously on the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment uh, and the Hill Hill the Hill precedent. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right that the privacy aspect is is not it just can't be ignored and and will be argued. Yeah, I think HIPAA applies to medical records, and so this right. is not a medical record, but the, the principle. Privacy yes. principle is there. Uh, Mandy Klausner is my name of the uh, Reason Foundation and the Individual Rights Foundation. I was one of the uh, authors of Prop 209, which is the precedent, predecessor to the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative that's under review now in the uh, Schutte case. And I wanted to ask uh, any of the panelists, or particularly Howard 
uh, who spoke about the case, whether you think whether your crystal ball would in any way be affected as to the potential outcome of the uh, the uh, ruling, the forthcoming ruling in Schutte, uh on the fact that in California, the Ninth Circuit, there actually was an in-bank consideration in a very small minority of the full Ninth Circuit or those that participate in the in-bank, a very small minority felt that the political doctrine, uh, political uh, uh, power doctrine was implicated. You're saying that uh, since even the Ninth Circuit didn't buy into what the Sixth Circuit agreed with, that that, that shows uh, how, how much lack of merit there is in the Sixth Circuit's Ruling? It seems to me that a connection could be drawn. <laughs> I, I did notice that, that uh, and this was through the SCOTUS blog symposium, so thanks again, Tom, that, that the Attorney General of California has uh, come out in favor of the challenge to the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, even though I believe at the time that, that Proposition 209 was being challenged, a different Attorney General was arguing that it was constitutional. So, so uh, maybe that... Uh, just offsets the point that you're making, but I, I, I'm not sure that the uh, that, that the courts will necessarily weigh who the dissenters were for, from the Ninth Circuit rehearing and bank in deciding the outcome of the case. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, look, a majority of the Supreme Court thinks that this rule, which says we're not going to have affirmative action in higher education, is a good thing in the sense that it's prohibiting discrimination. It's the notion that, look, if we pick out people by their race, whether white, black, Hispanic, whatever, you know, national origin, whatever, we're engaging in discrimination. And so I think a majority of the Supreme Court is going to find it very hard to say that it violates the Constitution to have a rule that is intended to prevent violations of the Constitution. Thank you. James Young, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Uh, this one's for Tom, and I'll, uh, it's kind of a little inside baseball. Um, Harris v. Quinn relisted four times. SG took m almost a year to file a brief on the cert petition. Uh, any speculation as to what, if anything, is the cause for the delay? I mean, I know, but do you want to explain what Harris... Harris v. Quinn is a, a, a case challenging... Uh, the unionization of home care providers in Illinois um, and forcing them to pay union dues. Um, Otherwise, independent contractors. Cato also filed in this case. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is another important area of First Amendment law or you know, speech law, associational law, uh, to the extent to which you can require people to contribute uh, and this is a fraught area in the Supreme Court in which the court is narrowly divided. It is, the court's general principle of law has been unions lose, uh, which is cross cuts across statutes and constitutional provisions. And Except it, Citizens United. Uh, well, they, they, they piggybacked along with a series of massive multinational corporations. Um, so, you know, I think that when this, the, the question was, look, the Supreme Court looked at this thing over and over and over again. They kicked it over to the Solicitor General, who struggled with it for a long time. Then it's come back to the Supreme Court, which has been struggling with it. And I think they're legitimately struggling with it. And neither, no set of justices, this is the kind of case where you don't want to grant cert unless you think you're going to win, right? The, the principle involved is I want to hear this case if I can make the law better in my own mind. And I expect that they have been struggling with that. And someone may have been writing an opinion objecting to the denial of cert or something like that.
Hi, uh, Stanley Cook for Professor Goldstein. On the recess appointment area, as you know, at least temporarily, the roadblock's been lifted, including to the NLRB. Does that raise at all a possibility of an issue of moodness? It doesn't because this is an adjudication, right? This, these, this, Noel Canning is an actual company and it got an actual adverse ruling from the NLRB. And the new members of the court, because that adjudication is done, the NLRB can't, I'll give you a counterexample. The Consumer Finance Safety Board thing, that also had recess appointment issues, but their head has now been, Richard Cordray has been confirmed by the Senate. And he could come back in and just restamp their regulations and rules that were issued when he was a recess appointee. The NLRB can't do that. So all those previous adjudications are very much live, even though there is a new NLRB for the new cases that come along. All the way in the back. Alexander R. Cohen, Atlas Society Business Rights Center. I'd actually like to follow up on that issue <clears throat> and on the comment that you made you know, about what do you do when a clause has been ignored for a long time. You drew the analogy to the Second Amendment, but the Second Amendment doesn't involve um, adjudications like that. What is the scope of, the, uh, of uh, adjudications uh, that have already been made that would be placed on shaky ground, not just with NLRB, but uh, possibly with other agencies, possibly with all those hundreds of recess appointments that were cited by the government in the case, stretching back over history, what is the scope of what could be undermined by a decision narrowly restricting the recess appointment power? So there's no good answer to that question. The, 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 the root question is, look, so this NLRB has been around for a while, with these recess appointees and it did a bunch of stuff. And if we decide that those people didn't, ha didn't really hold that office, what happens to all the stuff that they did? Is it all gone? And if that's gone, well, what about all the other things? I mean, we're not going to the point of saying, well, MacArthur actually wasn't in charge and so we give up a war, but you know, there are gonna be some limits. Uh, but you know, what do we do, for example, uh, with other rules that were issued by recess appointees? And I would say, the Supreme Court, by and large, its view, and, and it does not have the remedial question in front of it, although it could write some dicta about it, um, their only real way out is to say that the remedy is a political question. And that is, what do you do about all of these old adjudications? Conceivably, they could say, and I don't even know that anybody's even making this argument, conceivably, they could say, you know, how you fix this problem backwards looking because everybody was acting on the basis of precedent is a, is a political question. But if they don't do that, I don't see how they avoid all the adjudications being blown up that are still live. Many of the adjudications went final, right? And so those cases are done. People didn't see this opportunity, didn't file this lawsuit. A lot of them did, many of them didn't. So when the if for those that the case is alive, I think that the court will would likely say if if the challengers prevail that those adjudications are invalid, and the real question will be: Does it go back to the NLRB to try again, or is it just over? With respect to stuff that happened 20, 30, 50 years ago, you know, 
recess appointments end at the end of the full session of the Senate. So it's not like there are people who are recess appointed 40 years ago and are still in their jobs. Judge Pryor was recess appointed to the 11th Circuit, but was eventually concerned, uh, confirmed Judge Gregory to the 4th Circuit. So I can't imagine that there's going to be this retrospective re-examination of things that happened in the past. I think it, people are generally pretty practical. I think they'll limit to themselves that the cases are, to the cases that are still in the courts. With the NLRB in particular, um, the, the settled law is if uh, the case has already gone to, into the judiciary from the board, then the judiciary takes jurisdiction of it and it continues it until it resolves it. Other cases uh, you know, are, are, are settled or decided or they're, they're still beside the board, uh, in front of the board. Um, and uh, to follow up on what, what Tom said, my understanding is for, you know, for past cases, the decisions have been issued, people have been acting based on them. Uh, I suppose you'd have a motion for uh, you know, reconsideration of some sort, and then there's all sorts of doctrines of, you know, latches and and stare decisis and, and res judicata and, and and things that that come in, and it's comp and you know that's just the NLRB. When you start looking at all the other types of recess appointment issues that might come up, uh, there are statutory regulations that might affect them all. But I, you know, generally I agree with Tom. I don't think you're going to have, you know, a reopening of some case from you know 1932 from the successor in, is, in interest uh, against the successor in interest. Hi, I'm Paul Jossi. Um, in Citizens United, the court showed a, a willingness to um, write some very broad language when it comes to, to First Amendment. And I was wondering, picking up on Cato's amicus brief, is, if there's any, uh, do you forecast any inclination that uh, the the court would, would touch this sort of artificial distinction that was made in Buckley between, uh, between contributions and expenditures and give... Uh, put contributions on the same speech value level as expenditures are currently? Um, I thought he was addressing it to the Cato brief. Sure. But, I mean, I can I, take I'm happy either. to say that, as I said, I, I think there could well be three justices who are ready to revisit that. You know, whether they could get two additional votes to do it, I... I I'm not I'm not sure of that at all. But there has been a lot of unhappiness with that distinction and that uh, precedent in particular over the years. And the court has resisted revisiting Buckley. Uh, but you never say never now after Citizens United. I mean, there's definitely a trend. Who knows if this case is the one? Um, uh, I'll mention that. Uh I have a law review article coming out in the St. Thomas University Law Review, that's the one in, in Minnesota, called Stephen Colbert's Right to Lampoon Our Campaign Finance System, and So Can You. Uh, and it's on the basis of that article that I testified before another Dick Durbin uh, Kabuki Theater a year ago on, on Citizens United. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, you see, the, my brief uh, 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 stands for itself. Uh, I think the distinction has become, uh, to the extent that it worked originally, based on the holes that have been poked through it by the court and, and subsequent layering of other kind of unworkable reforms, I think uh, eventually the instability will, will cause it to collapse upon, upon itself and the, the court will you know, declare it uh, done in that time if Congress hasn't by then. If, if this is the case, is this the case? 
Uh, probably not, because they can decide on narrower issues, but who knows? Uh, you know, Citizens United was originally supposed to be a fairly narrow case, and they realized once the Solicitor General said that, um, uh, you know, under the law they could ban books, uh, that set it up for a, a whole other thing. So who knows what will come out of even oral argument in the case. Yeah, I mean, this is not the case for two related reasons. Number one, it's easy for the administration to lose this case on little grounds rather than big grounds. The idea that, look, if I give Manny $4,000 rather than $2,800, there'll be a perceived quid pro quo that he owes me a big favor, right? Why does that mean that if I give the rest of you $1,776, which is what this uh, individual wants to do, that that somehow implicates the same interest? He won't owe me any other greater favor, and we're all comfortable with me giving $1,776 to you. Don't even think that's going to happen. Um, uh, so it just the it just doesn't track, and there are new provisions of the law that prevent the evasion that motivated the court to uphold the aggregate limits in Buckley versus Vallejo. The related point is that the the strategy, the approach of the Roberts Court has been to use cases incrementally to undermine prior cases, and the court is very likely to you know undermine the aggregate holding of Buckley to undermine the notion that there is this quid pro quo in this case and set the table if a majority does emerge to get rid of the distinction between contributions and expenditures. But their experience with the big move in Citizens United was poor enough, I think, that they will not take this step until they really believe that they have set the table and need to do it. That's what I was going to say. Your question uh, raises that sort of unanswerable question about how sensitive the court is to, (coughs) excuse me, the public's reaction to its decisions. And there was such a a backlash to Citizens United uh, that you wonder if if it has any impact on the court and, and this majority in particular and whether it will slow them down this time on the contributions issue. Let's go to the second last row back there. Thank you. Craig Dolan, University of Baltimore. And I guess this question is for Tom, but yeah, anyone else can free to um, pine. Um, so I wonder what do you make out of, if anything, out of Justice Scalia's concurrence in Ricci, uh, where he specifically said it might, uh, Tom, time may, have, may come or will come in the future to reexamine the whole disparate impact doctrine. Uh, obviously, it was just a concurrence. I think, I think Justice Thomas joined it, but uh, I think it was just two of them. And so does that presage anything? Does the fact that perhaps Justice Alita did not join it or just Roberts not join it presage anything? And how do you um, view that um, import of that, if at all? Right. So this is the famous New Haven firefighters case and the question of what, you know, at what ex- to what extent uh, that program violated the equal protection rights of the white firefighters. And Justice Scalia wrote a very interesting concurrence that essentially said some of these doctrines may themselves make Title VII unconstitutional because the government is, in in effect, engaging in race discrimination, uh, and that that might cause us to revisit the entire notion of whether you can have this unintentional discrimination of disparate impact rather than disparate treatment. And nobody has picked up that. uh, Nobody else in the court, he hasn't really either. There have been a number of briefs written on that theory in follow-up cases, and so I don't see it doing more than just Um, embodying the conservatives' hostility to uh, disparate impact 
claims. Uh, their felt sense that this is not what the statute provides, and it gets us into you know terrible situations of finding that people engaged in race discrimination and the like. Uh, and you see that, I think, in the CERT grant and the Mount Holly case and the previous fair housing case that I mentioned that settled. Um, but I don't see there's any realistic chance at all that they would declare it unconstitutional. I'll refer, to follow up on that, uh, I'll refer you to uh, Ken Marcus's article on Ricci in the Cato Supreme Court review from a few years ago called um, talking about the war between disparate impact and equal protection that goes in quite a bit into those sorts of issues. I think it may have been Tom who addressed this, uh, but if I misremember who spoke about it, then you can direct my question by reference to whoever did. This is the other Ilya, Ilya Soman. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I, I, my name is Ilya Soman. Uh, it's probably not a good idea for me to be in the same room with Ilya Shapiro, but it often does happen. But I am a different person, and I am a professor at George Mason <laughs> Law School. Hopefully, uh, we generally agree on everything. There are a few issues where we disagree, but my question actually doesn't go to that. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, I think it was Tom who said that uh, the gay community may be overreaching on the gay marriage issue, but it seems to me, uh, you know, one could ask, isn't there a good chance that within just a few years you will get a decision striking down gay marriage bans because there's a lot of language pointing at that direction in Windsor. In addition, both public and elite opinion are rapidly moving in a pro-gay marriage direction. If present tense continue within three, five years, you might get 60% or more of the public supporting it. So uh, I guess my question is, do, do you, the expert court watcher, how likely is it that the court will address this issue again in the next few years? And if they do, uh, is there a real chance that we'll see a broader decision striking down bans on gay marriage. Well, my favorite approach in a situation like this is to predict in one forum that the Supreme Court won't do this and then another forum and that it will and then to say <laughs> I was right. Um, so let me just say, no. So here's the deal. Look, you, you take a look at the Windsor decision. You can look at it in one, you know, with, through one lens or the other. On the one hand, the decision has a lot, is infused with this notion that the, government, the federal government has to respect the state's decision to recognize same-sex marriage, and the federal government can't ignore the state's decision. On the other hand, there is language in the decision that talks about the value of these unions, the fact that the Defense of Marriage Act was invidious, it was intended to discriminate. And you look at it and you say, Justice Kennedy, uh, what were you thinking? And that's a common question after decisions. <laughs> um, right, he has, he has left it open. Now, there are other data points. Data point number one is if you just go, Justice Kennedy is very candid in oral argument. He doesn't hide the ball. He doesn't ask you know, devil's advocate questions. And none of his questions in either of those cases really suggested, and let's agree that he's the tipping point justice here, you can't win this case on behalf of same-sex marriage if you don't have Justice Kennedy. Uh, none of them suggested that he was ready to go there. Remember as well, this is probably our, you know, our, our most conservative Supreme Court, if not ever, almost ever. The notion that there would be gay marriage in the country as a constitutional right five years ago was laugh out loud absurd. When Justice Scalia in 2003 said that the court's Lawrence decision would lead to same-sex marriage, people thought that was crazy. And I think that the, I agree with you that if the question came to the Supreme Court in five or 10 years, then the court would have had the opportunity to catch its breath, to see that social structures were perfectly fine, that these unions really did work well, that children were, you know, thrived in them and the like. But if you tell them, all right, 
you've got eight months, you've got 12 months. I think it's a, I don't know what happens, but it's certainly a much, much closer call in my opinion. Those opinions don't suggest to me that they set the table for recognizing a right to same-sex marriage. And now all of you are influenced on that particular point, and uh, we'll conclude <laughs> on that. Uh, let's give a big round of applause to our panel.